The Colorado Business Roundtable unapologetically tells the story that business is a force for good in our community, featuring conversations with thought leaders from academia, business, community, and government. Welcome to A Seat at the Table with Debbie Brown. Thanks, everyone, for joining us today on our podcast, A Seat at the Table with Colorado Business Roundtable, where we bring together thought leaders from academia, business, community, and government to talk about some of Colorado's most pressing issues. And today, I'm really excited about this topic. I've been uh, talking to Evelyn and Peter about getting together for quite some time to talk about housing. And I'm going to introduce them in just a minute. But first, we'll have connected to the podcast their report that's called From Conflict to Compassion, a Colorado Housing Development Blueprint for Transformational Change. And welcome, Evelyn Lim and Peter Lafari. Hi, nice to see you. thanks for having us. <laughs> Glad you thanks. could both be on. I think probably when people think about Colorado's pressing issues, as I mentioned, um, you know, housing comes to mind. I mean, thank goodness I bought a house way back 30 years ago because uh, it was still affordable and I was able to definitely, um, you know, use it to grow my assets. And we see now people who come to Colorado don't have the same opportunity to perhaps find affordable housing. You know, thinking about the younger generation, it's certainly top of mind. And this report was incredibly compelling. But before we get into the issue, I just want to give each of you a chance to give it, tell us a little bit more about your journey. And Evelyn, let me start with you. Tell us uh, a little bit more about you and how you got here today. Sure. I um, grew up in Chicago, uh, went to law school, and then after law school, moved to uh, Washington, D.C., where I um, entered uh, federal government service, first at um, Homeland Security. I worked in the White House. I worked for an ambassador in Finland. Um, also at housing and urban development, you know, I, I really just really love public policy and um, how we can really impact people's lives for the better using public policy. And I've just been in, in Colorado since 2009. And in 2021, I was asked to do this fellowship at Common Sense Institute with Peter Lafari on housing. And that's how I ended up on this podcast with you today. Very cool. And Evelyn and I go way back. I've, I've seen you in all those different roles and always admired um, your work. So thanks for being on. And Peter, you and I are new connections, but tell me more about you. Yeah, Debbie, great to be here. Um, so I grew up in New York, spent um, about a decade working in national security as a civilian contractor, uh, um, you know, kind of assigned to working uh, with the Department of Defense, uh, various agencies. Uh, Evelyn and I have a connection there as well that kind of, kind of helped bind us uh, early when we met. And um, really see affordable housing or, or lack thereof as as a national security threat. Uh, kind of finished my MBA and um, I got really inspired by housing, housing development and leading a governmental entity or a political subdivision like a housing authority. And so kind of made the switch and had a fantastic mentor and just dear friend, Don May, uh, was looking to bring someone in that was not, you know, from the traditional channels, but had uh, a strong business background as well as an understanding of intergovernmental relations. And so uh, asked me to come join him as part of his succession plan and uh, just felt like it's my tribe, uh, like we're rock and rollers in a van kind of uh, crossing this great country trying to, to preach the good word of of the importance of a stable and attainable uh, and healthy home. And so it's great to be here. I've been the CEO at Maker since uh, 2018. 
And we own, operate, and develop multifamily affordable housing, primarily using what's called the low-income housing tax credit vehicle. And we strive to be an anchor institution, right? So each day we look to be a place of opportunity uh, where folks can come together from the private and public sectors in Adams County to connect in and and drive results that uh, our, our Adams County residents desire and require. It's great to be here. And it's fun too. Common Sense Institute definitely brings together people with different perspectives, different backgrounds and levels of expertise. And I can see why you two, you know, were put together for this particular report and fellowship. Um, Peter, starting with you, give us kind of the 30,000 foot perspective on the research with CSI and, and why you um, were part of undertaking this study and report. Yeah, definitely. I'm sorry, uh, Common Sense Institute. I am a fellow there and, and have been so for a few years. I didn't mean to admit that. It's been fantastic. And the Institute gives me uh, a lot of leeway to uh, plant seeds and uh, see them grow and, and challenge status quo dynamics. And that was the report. You know, Evelyn and I came together and we quickly decided that we wanted to look at this as CEOs. We wanted to map out the value chain and start to see where in this process are we driving value or if we are uh, deteriorating it. And so, you know, we were inspired early on by this author called Amanda Ripley, who writes great work about high conflict. She actually wrote this book called High Conflict that kind of describes the dangers of binary constructs, us versus them. And so through that process, we started talking about some of the root cause issues and really proud that we were doing so, I think on the beginning of the curve, uh, in 2021 in ways that were unique uh, to Colorado and ears and eyes. And so um, by coming at it and saying, wait a minute, there's no core values that drive and weigh decision-making analysis as we see in boardrooms across the country. Uh, is there any uh, question, is there any surprise that uh, we are failing uh, significantly and uh, at each other's throats uh, and that we're looking for these, you know, single shot, you know, moonshot ideas that are just going to, you know, kind of act like some Disney, you know, kind of hero coming in to save us all from our malaise. And what we found was that's just uh, couldn't be further from the truth, right? We had to look at and ultimately what we found was it's the codes, it's the codes, it's the codes. It's the decisions that we refuse to make and it's the trade-offs that are because of that, when we put people uh, and cars and fear ahead of logic. And so ultimately, you know, what we found was that, you know, while we have a badly broken process, we have a multitude of tools, um, all the talent, desire and uh, capacity in the world. It's just whether or not we can move into a logic based solution and out of this fear based mindset. Evelyn, having you jump in, um curious about the business community's piece in this. And, and, you know, we represent large employers, whether it's academia, business community, or government. The number one issue um, attracting and training talent has to some degree been housing. People might not want to move here. So it's become something that the business community cares about, not just people who aren't able to find affordable housing. Give us a sense of your perspective in terms of that, the, the business aspect. Sure. Um, it's a great question because, you know, housing really impacts the economic vibrancy of a state and a community. So when people can't afford to live here, it really impacts impacts businesses and their ability to attract talent, which means, you know, the state's really losing out on some economic advances, increases in tax basis, which can go towards improving services and education and, and infrastructure. So I think it really impacts um, the business community, and it really impacts 
you know, whether you're feeling the housing crunch or not, you're seeing some of these effects that impacts everyone. And so when people can't live in the communities where they work, you know, it contributes to urban sprawl, it contributes to more congestion, more stress on our infrastructure. And all, these are all things that we're seeing as individuals also. So I think when we really look at housing, it's really our ability to accommodate um, additional population growth. And it's become kind of a vicious cycle where people can't afford, you know, to buy their first homes. It means there's no mobility. People can't, you know, we've seen seniors who can't downsize, which means there's less ability to move into those larger homes. And so that cycle, as Peter mentioned, is entirely broken. And so there's a lot of stagnation. Um, it gives a lot of people, um, it gives people less choice and less freedom uh, to move. And that impacts, again, our economic vibrancy. Sort of takes the supply off the market to some degree. And and I would say particularly for employers, what we're hearing is, you know, they might offer somebody a job here and guess what? Uh, the person might even accept the job. And then they look at the housing prices and boom, you know, uh, it's not as attractive for them to want to come here, uh, come to Colorado because of that comparison. Peter, back to you, what factors, I mean, does the report really go into kind of the factors you, you mentioned code, code, code. What are those factors that have led to, to the current crisis? Yeah, I mean, so the way that we're operating today is the way we were operating really in the 40s and 50s. And so we're still only zoning the vast majority of our land uh, to allow one housing structure uh, per lot. It's, uh, it's just drive sprawl, as, as Evelyn has shared. We also um, have very onerous and superfluous uh, zoning requirements that have made building almost impossible. Uh, we've also, for whatever reason, allowed ourselves to believe that one individual, one American can dictate what another American who and their asset can do, um, even above and beyond what is legal. And so, you know, we have an absolute rage theater where individuals show up in uh, public settings and public hearings and they lament everything that they are concerned and feared about in the modern American life. And so we're acting a lot like the Europeans do and totally un-American, right? So we have built our entire economy and our competitiveness off of a cost-benefit analysis construct, right? And it's really what's driven innovation uh, and it drives efficiencies and it's made us, you know, win in just about every theater that we participate in. Housing is the opposite, right? So it's more of this you know, precautionary principle. I'm concerned about traffic. Um, I'm concerned about wildlife. I'm concerned about water. You know, all, you know, right. concerns that are, that are real, but ultimately, you know, we're making these, you know, hyper -log illogical decisions that then just add more cost onto the process. So instead of us asking ourselves, to have a competition of ideas and tap into American exceptionalism, which, you know, led to us, you know, having the first manned flight off of the beach in North Carolina or breaking the speed of sound in Southern California or harnessing the power of the sun just recently in a Californian laboratory. We're looking at each other like we can't even figure out how to innovate in housing. And it's just crippling us. And it's because we are treating it unlike any other sector of our economy. And we have a total lack of a free market and the results speak for themselves. 
And Peter, just to clarify, when you talk about, you know, someone complaining about perhaps growth or, you know, are you thinking of kind of the local government issue of, you know, you might have a city council or a board of commissioners that are dealing with some of these issues and they're being stalled because um, of, of that system of nimbyism, you know, not in my backyard, people who want to be really careful about that as opposed to thinking big. Is that where you're yeah. going with that? Mm-hmm. Yeah, well, you know, it's again, I think it comes back because we have a deep seated fear of one another, right? For whatever reason, we've become completely terrified of being shoulder to shoulder with someone that we are on a first name basis with in the public square. And so we treat folks not as neighbors, but as invaders. And the individuals that carry the, the weight of influence at local governments are homeowners and homeowners have been conditioned to, you know, look at their nest egg, the equity in their home as their complete and total safety blanket against all that could threaten them. And they wield that influence quite beautifully if you're on that side of the discussion. And what happens is, is discretionary elements within our entitlement approval, development approval processes have gone completely out of whack, right? So we have Local governments are in a prisoner's dilemma, right? They are, you know, kind of bound, you know, to their constituents. They count the votes. They know who votes and they understand that those individuals who are notified of the process are going to want to drive the influence of the outcome. And so mm-hmm. what happens is, is that things that are legally permissed are, are overturned and there's no sort of remuneration or accountability, uh, for local governments that are making these decisions to developers and owners. Um, there is uh, litigation, there's recalls, and there's also a proliferation of threats against developers and locally elected officials, uh, individuals' safety, right? And so, you know, just recently in Glenwood Springs, we could see this. Um, you know, there was a city-supported project, uh, community members, not proportional to the, uh, the uh, total number of citizens in that local government, um, were threatening lawsuits, threatening uh, recalls, and then also personally threatening uh, the individuals that were making these decisions. So we've created a, a hyper unsafe environment and it permeates our decision making. And we're not allowing the housing that we even want to have built move through because of these illogical decisions. Yeah, government has always been messy. I mean, since the founding of our country, and that's a, a super interesting perspective, Peter. Um, I want to build on that, Evelyn, with you, because, of course, if you listen to the State of the State Address by Colorado's governor, um, it reiterated that theme, housing, housing, housing. It's It looks like to be, if you think about the number of minutes he spent on it, that it's one of his biggest issues in the state. How do you, what can be done at the state government level to improve, improve housing? Of course, we, we're seeing the natural tension between local and state in this dilemma, which, which I think Peter alluded to very succinctly. But Evelyn, what, what do you see that the governor's going to do or what are you predicting and, and what should he do? Yeah, I um, agree with everything uh, Peter said. And I think that's one of the um, most complex issues that is surrounding housing development everywhere, not just in Colorado. Um, I like some of the things. I First of all, I appreciate that the governor is making this one of his biggest priorities because I think it's absolutely needed. I do like some of the things that he's already done, which um, some of the things that Peter and I have talked about in our report, such as the um, innovative housing, um, you know, they just started that innovative housing fund, which will really spur uh, technology advancements such as, you know, 3D printing and, and modular housing. And so I think when it comes to innovation in housing, Colorado can really be at the forefront. 
and really showcase really for the rest of the United States that this is a viable and cost-effective way to produce housing, as well as show people that you aren't really losing anything when it comes to quality, attractiveness, or even equity building when it comes to innovative housing. And so I think that you can make some of the gains in terms of time, um, even energy efficiency, which I know everybody's really interested in, and of course, you know, cost. Uh, some of the things, though, that I think that we can improve upon from the state is really um, some of our public policy stature when it comes to regulations that inhibit uh, building. Uh, we saw the statewide energy code was passed last uh, session, which I really think adds to some of the onerous building requirements that not only increase the cost of housing, but also slows down development. And so I think that impacts particularly affordable and market housing. And so, you know, if we could stay away from those types of piecemeal uh, policy interventions, uh, other things like rent control and, you know, things that focus on the demand side, uh, we can really encourage a lot of growth. And so the only other thing that I'll mention, and I'm sure Peter has some things to add to, is that we can also encourage workforce policies because we're facing a workforce shortage in um, construction in, and in trade. And so we need to really ramp up building. We're going to have to do some more policies that encourage specialized training and education for these trades. Yeah, that makes sense. And Evelyn, before I, before I jump back to Peter, what, one of the things you mentioned really hits home with our folks with Colorado Business Roundtable, sort of the theory of unintended consequences and the layering effect of regulatory, you know, issues, whether it's a legislative issue or a ballot issue or a rulemaking, this layering effect that leads to the cost of doing business is something I hear time and time again from our large employers. And, you know, it seems like housing is a really big factor of that is, is sort of the unintended consequences or intended consequences, perhaps, of this layering effect. What can you add into that, Evelyn, in terms of how that affects affordability? You know, the home builders did some really great research on how much it costs. It adds to the cost of building um, some of these issues. And I think even when you look at it from what Peter was talking about at the planning stage, the longer it takes to get through that planning stage also adds to the cost. And Peter, you know, is a developer also at, at Maker, so he can talk a little bit more about that. But I do agree that it just, I think when you, as from a public policy standpoint, you sometimes think about, you know, these one issue type things like energy um, and the environment and climate, and you don't really think about how it impacts everything else like housing. And so that's some of the research that we've been doing a common sense is talking about how all of those policies impact housing. And so one thing we say is if housing is a priority, then you have to think about it as a priority. And some of these other things are really going to have to fall by the wayside if you want to increase development. And that, you know, some of those things include the energy and climate policies that the state has really been focused on. Peter, wrapping wrapping up the conversation today um, and really appreciate the time with you and Evelyn. I think for our folks too, it's such a pressing issue and, and sometimes we don't think about the business application, but Peter, when you look at other states, which it looks like you have, um, do you, what do you see as other best practices? Are there some states who are doing this well that we can learn from here in our state? 
Yeah, good, great question. I, you know, I, I just want to say I think we need a cultural, you know, renaissance when it comes. I, I don't think any state is actually grappling with the, you know, core root of the issue. I do think that, and I think that starts with the president. I don't think, uh, you know, a, a one-liner uh, in the state of the union uh, is going to do it. I think it, we need to look at housing, as I started before, as national security, right? If we care about crime, if we care about average wage earning, if we care about being the America that we have demonstrated the capability of two, that liberated the entire war- world when we got our act together, you know, and as Churchill said, right, Americans will do the right thing essentially after they've exhausted all other options. I think we've exhausted all other options. So we can pick and choose what other states are doing. But folks in the balcony are going to throw, in the peanut gallery, they're going to start throwing darts at it and say, well, it has to be this, or it has to be that, or it's Yimby, or it's NIMBY. What it really is, is we need to have a new housing America future, right, where that we have the ability to integrate commerce generating activity within a two mile radius of where we live so that we have a tax revenue base. We can have a reduction of the dependency on cars because, you know, this is a big part of our issue currently. So what I'm calling for is actually a revolution when it comes to the way that we stand up this market and this industry. It's prime for disruption. And so, you know, we need someone that has that grand vision that is going to be able to say that we can move forward. And I think Evelyn said on that, those trade-offs, those dynamics. But right now, Americans don't know what we're capable of producing. And so as such, we shun all of the required solutions, right? We shut off our ingenuity. We shut off our imagination. And and ultimately, we shun um, those individuals that we view, as I mentioned before, I believe, as invaders. And so, but if we flip that around and say, how are we going to plan for the next hundred years, right? Much like we did when we came out of World War II and we said, oh my God, homelessness is significantly worse than it is right now. Poverty is significantly worse, right? But we had, and Linda Baines Johnson held a big part of this and said, you know, gosh darn it, we're Americans. We're going to get this thing right. And I believe we need to go back to that. So sure, we can look at programs coming out of California, like AB 2011, which upzones commercial land by right uh, to four to six stories with um, essentially 20% of the units have to be at 80% of AMI or less, right? We're going to, but until we get to that cultural point and we start looking at like what everyone and I said, like, let's look at the value chain. Are we creating ugly babies, that product that nobody wants? No one likes our multifamily stock in this country. They think it's ugly. They think it's too big and it's too bulky. And so when they imagine upzoning in our country, they immediately picture product they despise and they should despise it. We're producing junk. We do not produce the type of assets architecturally that we're capable of. We do not produce the type of livable units that will suit our Colorado family's requirements to pursue so, happiness. So, Peter, just, and so just we to have jump to pull into. that stuff out. We, and, yeah. But this, and so, you know, Debbie, I appreciate you letting me share that, but no one solution works in a vacuum. What it really right. comes back to us is do we want to, as Americans dictate the terms of our next hundred year housing future or do we want to continue to see individuals sleeping on our streets 
young children being evicted, and then, you know, the cycle of poverty continuing. Because if we can move to a place where we have a competition of ideas and folks can compete in our American society based off of their God-given strengths and gifts, no one can beat us. And so that's what I would share with us back, because it is. Look at our net immigration, Debbie, right? Like we, this state imports our talent. And if the last two years foretell the next 10, we're in a lot of trouble. So, Peter, I don't think we scheduled enough time with you guys today because this is so compelling. And I and I'm picturing if I could sum up your viewpoint, I think is like, all right, let's let's think about streamlining or um, eliminating regulation because it's stifling the creativity and the free enterprise that America is known for. Is that a good way to sort of summarize a little bit. Yeah. I mean, there's probably yeah. more and then, to it. And then but, local governments and local governments yeah. can step in from a social housing perspective, right? It has mm-hmm. to be market-based. We can't, we can't depend on Congress to pass any budget, let alone be able to service, you know, the needs of a capital asset, like a 50 million, a hundred million dollar housing project. Right. So we're not talking about public housing here, but we need to, this is the other thing. We like to eat our young, right? That's not affordable enough or that's, that's too market. And if we build too much market, folks are going to get left behind. <laughs> and we talk about yeah. this in our report. And it so the other like, thing, yeah, right? Definitely. And, and I want to give Evelyn a chance. Yeah. I know Evelyn, but you got to jump in a minute. Yeah, no, you're good. This is so feisty and fun. Like I think it's such awesome. a compelling issue. Evelyn, give us, give us your final wrap here on this issue of housing, and then we're going to make sure people are directed to the report for more information. Well, I, you know, I would love to come back on, Debbie, and and finish the conversation. I think there is so much to talk about, and I think we're seeing a lot of movement, particularly with the governor's um, identification of of housing as one of his biggest priorities. I, I think he's on the right track, and so I really am encouraged by that. Um, but again, you know, for the business community and how they should get involved, I think that they should stay involved. They should really keep our policymakers feet to the fire to say housing is a priority, not only for, you know, the people living in Colorado, but for the economy of the state. And I think, you know, together we can, we can really do this. So, um, I'm, I'm really hopeful for the future. Yeah, well said. And here's the thing. This is our first conversation. This issue is not going to be solved next week. And then we've missed our opportunity to engage. So Peter and Evelyn, thanks so much for being here. I know, Peter, you said shoot. It's not going to be solved in a week. (laughs) So um, I'm excited to welcome you guys back. And this might be an actual roundtable we need to put together with an audience to really drumbeat this more and let our partners weigh in as well. So just so appreciate your time and your thought leadership on this critical issue for Colorado. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. And thanks everyone for joining. This has been A Seat at the Table with Colorado Business Roundtable. A Seat at the Table with Debbie Brown is a production of the Colorado Business Roundtable. You can find this episode, a listing of our upcoming events, and more information about our organization at cobrt.com.